Hot Girls Code, a podcast all about software development and being a woman in tech. I am your host, Orti. And I'm your host, Lola. Now, I really enjoyed last week's episode where we expressed a little bit of gratitude at the start in order to help Orti reach her New Year's resolution. So I thought maybe this week we'd start off the same way. Orti, what are you grateful for this week? I am grateful for having a job where I can have a little sleep in when I need it. So I had a terrible night's sleep last night. I had a very bad stress dream, so Mm. I'm terrified of chickens. And bear with me. I had a dream that my boyfriend made us buy chickens because of the egg shortage that's going on at oh the motors. So you could get more eggs. So we could get more eggs. Logical. And I like so scared of them. And I just like couldn't sleep when I had a really stressed sleep. Um, and then I woke up in the morning and I told my boyfriend, I was like, why did you make us buy chickens? And he apologized. Are you still angry self. at him? <laughs> he always apologizes for his dream self straight Smart away. Boy. Smart, Smart boy. boy. Um, but yeah, it was. I was really rough because I woke up and I didn't feel too good and I knew that I could sleep in an extra hour and I'd still get to work in time for my first meeting and it just meant that I'd just work a bit later, later in the day and just having that flexibility, I'm so grateful for that because I know it's a privilege that not everyone has. Yeah, the flexibility in tech is definitely one of the best benefits and I can also confirm that Autie is terrified of chickens and when I first met her, I kind of thought it was like a joke but then I we were at a camp, a camp for the Women in Engineering Network and there were just these little chickens like roaming around and I was so excited because I was like, oh my God, chickens. <laughs> you know, like picture that Kylie Jenner clip where she's like, is that a chicken? Is, it, is that what she says? But it's actually like a pig. <laughs> that was me. Anyways, I was like chasing around these chickens and I eventually picked one up. And there's this, this picture of me like smiling and holding this chicken. And Autie was literally like cowering inside with the door closed. And she said the, the doors had to stay closed. They could not on. be open. No chickens can enter here. Yeah. So yeah, I am terrified of chickens. Um, but back to gratitude. Lola, what are you grateful for this week? I am so grateful for chickens. Um, <laughs> infiltrating Autie's dreams. <laughs> no, I am really grateful for my lunch yesterday and not just the food that I was eating, although it was quite yummy. I was grateful because we realized when we were sitting down, me and Autie were both in the office because we work at the same company and we were sitting down at the table and we looked around and we realized that we were sitting with four female devs. It was all female developers at the table. And that was just like quite a cool experience because I know when I first started here, I think Autie might've been the only female developer in our department. So we're growing. We look at that go. Expansion, diversity. I really do love that. But into today's episode now. So it's a bit of an interesting episode because we will be talking about what we, and other experts in the industry believe to be good code. I love how you say other experts in the industry, like we're experts in the industry too. Uh, obviously we are, Lola. We are here I, backing I ourselves. I love this. <laughs> you're like hyping me up. I feel my confidence growing. Anyways, when you're learning to code, it can be hard to know if the code you're writing is actually good. There seems to be a million and one rules and different principles and articles online that all tell you if you listen to them, you'll become the best developer ever and write the best code ever. But how do you even know what to listen to and what makes code good? We're not going to leave you hanging until the end of the episode for an answer. Good code boils down to writing code that is easy to change. 
but that is easier said than done. In today's episode, we're going to start off by unpacking the idea that good code is code that is easy to change. We'll then talk a bit about what makes code easy to change and some popular basic design principles to help you write good code. We'll then finish off talking about code smells and hacks, explaining what each of these things are and giving you guys some examples. Let's start with the question, what is good code? It's kind of difficult to define good code because there are so many definitions of what might mean quality code or software. For example, correctness, where your code does the right thing, or maintainability, where you want to write code that isn't going to be totally obsolete in a year's time and needs to be rewritten. You could also judge your code on its readability. So if another developer can look at your code and understand what's happening, it's important because otherwise you're going to run into some issues with working in teams. There's nothing worse than code that you can't read or understand that someone else has written because it's like I don't know what to do with this. I don't even want to try because clearly you didn't try. <laughs> there are so many things to consider about what makes good code and those last two that Autie mentioned, maintainability and readability, both end up leading back to the idea we want to explore more today which is changeability of code. This is all about writing software that is easy to change in the future, either by yourself or more importantly, by someone else. And this relates to the idea of extensibility or writing code that can be extended for different use cases in the future or if the use case changes completely. You might be thinking, wait, but surely having code that works correctly is far more important than having code that's easy to change. And I mean, like, yes, that is important, to make sure your code actually runs and does what you want it to do. But that doesn't mean the code you've written is actually good, it just means it works. You can write some really awful code that does exactly what you want, but that doesn't make it good code. For example, let's say you're coding a website all about Legally Blonde that displays how many years since the cult classic was released. Let's say that you created the website last year, in 2022. Legally Blonde was 21 years old, Oh my gosh, 21 years old. Ugh, I hate that. I know, that's kind of terrifying. But now it's 2023. And if you just hard-coded that Legally Blonde is 21 years old all over your website, it's going to be wrong everywhere. So some developer is going to have to go and change it in every place it's written on site every year because you hard-coded it. But if you wrote the code so that it calculated the years since 2001 on its own, that is objectively better code. This is an example of code that was correct when it was written, but wasn't actually good code. And it's not just us that thinks this. Dave Thomas, who's also known as Prag Dave in like the software community, he um, is one of the guys that wrote the Agile Manifesto. He was on the ski trip. And if you don't know about the ski trip, make sure you listen to our episode all about Agile. Yes, he is an Agile icon. And he also wrote another book that's super popular called Pragmatic Programmer. So he's like, he's he's a big deal in software. He's one of the big wigs. He is one of the big wigs. So he spoke at a conference that I went to recently and his talk was largely about, you know, changeable code and all this and was my inspo for this episode. And he spoke about how we're writing code for a world that is constantly changing. And so code that is correct now can really, really quickly no longer be correct because things change. And I wanted to share a direct quote from this talk because I, it just, it really hit. He said, 
We should not be valuing correctness as the most important thing our code should do. The ability to change our code is more important than the ability to write correct code because code that is hard to change will never be correct. Code that is incorrect but can change stands a fighting chance. Ooh, I got chills. <laughs> Feel it. Wow, really, that one really sunk in. <laughs> no, but that is that is such a good quote. And it's not just us saying this. This is like the big leagues in tech who are also saying that changeability is super important in code. So clearly dealing with changes is a pretty big part of software in general. If websites still looked the way they did in the 1990s, it would be pretty gross. For anyone who hasn't seen what the internet looked like in the 90s, maybe some like little baby Gen Zers out there, an iconic example which still lives on is the official Space Jam website, which has not changed since 1996. Go check it out. It's so ugly, but in a kind of cute way. Like pugs. I looked this website up for this episode and it made me feel so nostalgic. Like it, for some reason I looked at it and I just thought Neopets straight away took me back to... Took you back to your childhood. But on a serious note, extensibility, scalability, maintainability, and a bunch of other important software concepts all rely on being able to deal with changes. So many of the concepts that you learn about software are underpinned by the idea that you are trying to write code that is easy to change. Things like design principles, design patterns, test-driven development, all the buzzwords. These are rules that instill habits instincts and thought patterns in developers that ultimately help to build code that is easy to change. So we know changeable code is good, but what makes code easy to change? The two things we think sum it up well are minimizing the risks associated with changing code and making your code readable and easy to understand. Firstly, let's talk about minimizing risks. This means trying to think about how you might want to change your code in the future and how you can write code in a way that things won't blow up if you do need to make changes. A great way to do this is by writing tests. This is actually the basis for a popular software development process called test-driven development, something we can definitely unpack in a future episode if people are interested. Another way to reduce risks is by reducing a thing we call coupling. Coupling occurs when different parts of your code are very interdependent when they shouldn't be. So like maybe you have a function that adds numbers together and then a completely different function to like show colors on your website. You don't want those to be dependent on each other because if things are too interdependent and in random ways, it means that you can change something in one place and then accidentally break things somewhere else without even realizing. That's the worst thing when developers in my squad are looking into what caused a bug and they're like, okay, so the bug that was on this page of the website was actually caused by this other thing, which is like 5 million years away in coding world. And you're like, well, why does that affect that? And you're like, mm, bad code. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Some dependencies. Next, let's talk about readability and writing code that is easily understandable. This is a big thing in a book called Clean Code, which is one of my favorite software development books, and I highly recommend it to any developers. Forty reads it every night before bed. Okay, I currently am rereading it before bed. <laughs> you are! So I can't argue that, but I don't normally read it every night before bed. It started as a joke and it ended as a fact. <laughs> and it's the second time I'm reading it. I read it with a highlighter and everything. I'm Okay, that. Orty, you don't need to you don't need to expose yourself. We know you're a nerd. <laughs> well, whenever I write code, I write it under the assumption that the next person who will work on it 
won't be me. And if this mysterious other person is going to be changing my code, then they're going to need to understand it. They're going to need to know what's going on because you can't change something easily if you can't understand it easily. So you want to write your code in a way that makes it easy to read and easy to follow. This means whoever is working on it next can focus on trying to actually think about the changes they want to make and make the code better rather than spending hours just trying to decipher and decode what you have written. You can do this by doing things like naming your variables sensibly and also laying out your code in a way that's logical so that's easy to follow along. And another big thing is being consistent. Consistency in style, both in terms of formatting and how you space things, but also in terms of how you actually go about carrying out operations in your mm. code. There are so many different ways that you can do the same thing. And if you're doing it a different way every time in your code, it can be really confusing. Yeah, people will be like, is there a reason it was different? And if someone's like, no, I just felt like it. Just for a bit of fun, spice it up. Exactly. But if someone's not there to tell them, then people will spend hours being like, well, there must be a reason. At this point, we know that we want to write code that can be changed easily. We know that decoupling and readability help make code easier to change. But if we want to define something as good software or good code, how do we actually measure how changeable it is? One way is by considering change cases. A change case describes new potential requirements for a system or changes to existing requirements. You also want to consider the likelihood the change case will actually occur. We can use change cases to identify the sort of changes the design should accommodate for. So if we go back to our Legally Blonde website example, which displays the age of the movie, a very, very likely change case is that we move a year forward in time. <gasps> what? I know. So the age of the movie will increase each year. So that change case is definitely something you want to consider in the design of your website in this instance. We can then take those change cases and evaluate the system we've designed against those to see how changeable the code might be. There are other metrics to measure the changeability of code, like changeability index, which you can read about online if you're interested in learning more. Next, we're going to talk through some common design principles and why they've become such important guidelines in designing software systems. Now, design principles tell us a lot about how to make code easy to change. These are basically a set of guidelines that help developers to create a good system design. And they pretty much all have fun, snazzy acronyms to help you remember them because we know that software love acronyms. Who doesn't love a snazzy acronym? Firstly, we will talk about arguably the most well-known set of principles, the solid principle. Then we will talk about DRY, KISS and YAGNI. And yes, these are acronyms. I swear I'm not making this up. So firstly, let's talk about SOLID. These are principles that you hear a lot about in software. The S stands for single responsibility. This just means that things should only be responsible for doing their one thing only. They should only have a single responsibility. Therefore, it should only have a single reason to change. The O stands for open-closed. Systems should be open for extension and closed to modification. Basically, this just means if we want to add new functionality, we should be able to do that without touching existing code. This is because whenever we modify existing code, we're taking the risk of creating potential bugs. So we should try to avoid touching the tested and 
mostly reliable production code if possible. Now, the last three principles of SOLID do require a bit of a deeper understanding of technical coding concepts, so we won't be going into them in this episode. But if you wanted a proper episode about all the SOLID principles in depth, please let us know. If you wanted to look into these yourself, they are Liskov Substitution Principle, Interface Segregation Principle, and the Dependency Inversion Principle. Another popular design principle is referred to as Separation of Concerns. This is similar to the Single Responsibility Principle we just spoke about, and it's something you'll hear about a lot in software. It's a design principle that just means organizing your code into different sections, and each section is responsible for a single concern meaning it only has one job to do. Each section would be independent of each other, and that is why when you want to change something, each section can be tackled independently, and your code becomes easier to maintain, update, and reuse. Side note, if you're ever in a meeting with developers, just like chuck in some, oh yeah, maybe we should decouple this. Oh, is there a separation of concerns there? And they'll think you're just like top notch. They'll be like, wow, great catch, great catch. <laughs> yeah, good point. <laughs> Next up, we've got dry, which stands for don't repeat yourself. By not repeating yourself in code, this means you only have to change things once when they do need to change, rather than finding stuff all around the code base and changing it individually in multiple places. That being said, sometimes there are exceptions to this rule, where you might need to repeat yourself in order to avoid coupling things together that shouldn't be coupled, or sometimes you need to repeat part of your code to avoid overcomplicating things. So a great way to think about dry is don't repeat yourself unless there is a good reason to. One of my absolutely favorite principles is called KISS. <laughs> it stands for keep it simple, stupid. That's actually what it stands for. I didn't make that up. One time, one of my teachers in primary school wrote KISS on one of my, like, writing assignments or something, and I genuinely thought that I was being, like, like, she was, like, coming on to me or something. <laughs> of course you did. That's so funny. I'm so confused. So this is, yeah, obviously a universal thing. I think I've also had an English teacher say that. But it basically means don't use overcomplicated fancy stuff to seem smart. The simpler your code is the easier it is to understand and the more straightforward it will be to change. I swear, some developers have this chip on their shoulder about trying to write code that uses the least amount of lines possible, but sometimes that just makes your code harder for other people to understand, and it's honestly one of my biggest pet peeves. I hate that. And finally, you've got YAGNI, which stands for You Ain't Gon' Need It. This principle states that always implement things when you actually need them. So don't implement requirements before they're actually required. Don't over-engineer your solution. It's a tough line to walk between future-proofing your work and over-engineering it, and you do have to be careful. You don't want to add unnecessary code in or make your code super complicated to account for something that only happens in a few extreme circumstances. And this is when you really want to take into account the probability of a change case actually happening. In software, we call these unlikely circumstances edge cases. It's a situation that only occurs at a really specific or really extreme range of inputs. One common one in web development is when things don't work for Internet Explorer, but work for all other browsers. In that case, Internet Explorer is an edge case. And then you're like, okay, who really uses Internet Explorer? Do we care if it doesn't work for them? No. <laughs> 
So those are some common design principles used in software engineering for designing good software systems and helping to make our code able to deal with changes. Here's a fun fact that I learned. Most of the lifetime cost of a software product is incurred after it is first delivered, during its maintenance stage. So that's why you really want code that you can maintain and change easily when needed. Now we understand a few design principles to help us write changeable code. What about figuring out if the code we've already written is changeable? Or maybe some common examples of things we should avoid to stop writing code that isn't easily changed. That is when code smells come into the picture. I honestly hate this phrase so much. I remember learning about it in uni and it was like, code smells? Is your code smelly? Let's find out. A code smell is something in a piece of code that possibly indicates a deeper problem. It's like when you leave your raw chicken in the fridge for one day too many. You give it a quick smell test to see if it's maybe okay to cook. You smell something funky? Firstly, do not cook the chicken. Please, I do not want any of our listeners getting salmonella. And secondly, the smell points to there being a bigger problem here some kind of nasty bacteria that will lead to food poisoning. Let's step away from chicken and back to coding. Oh yeah, you hate chickens. We've (laughs) talked a lot about chickens today. I do like eating chicken though, it's fine. (laughs) Code smells aren't hard and fast rules, but they are an indication that there may be a problem with your design that requires a closer look. And that deeper problem leads to the code being difficult to change, whether that be because the code is harder to understand or because it's more fragile. We wanted to take you through some key code smells. And these are duplicate code, magic numbers, long functions slash methods, confusing names, and finally comments as deodorant. So let's start off with duplicate code. This is a really common code smell and it goes right back to don't repeat yourself, the design principle we spoke about earlier. Don't repeat code. But what should you do if you find yourself repeating code? Try moving that section of code into a reusable function instead, so you can call that. If you remember back to episode four, functions allow you to define a section of code with a name so that you can make it run in different places in your code. So if you find yourself constantly writing out the logic to say, capitalize the first letter in a string, then maybe you should move that code into a function and call that function instead. Next up, we have magic numbers. And sadly, these aren't as exciting as they sound. Like I would love to picture some like fairies around like a beautiful mushroom moss garden, but that's not what we have here. Magic numbers are when you have numbers directly written in your code, rather than defining a constant or variable that you use throughout. Going back to our Legally Blonde example, when we hard-coded Legally Blonde as being 21 years old, That was us using a magic number. But instead, if we created a variable called movie age, even if we hard-coded the year, it would still be a lot better for two reasons. Firstly, it makes the code more easy to understand because rather than randomly seeing the number 21 everywhere, people can see that the number is referring to the movie's age from the variable name. And secondly, if you're using the number repeatedly, if you just use a constant, you won't accidentally type the wrong value. If you're writing 21, 50 times, chances are at least one of those times you'll accidentally write 32 or something. Now we're going to talk about long functions slash methods. Long functions can be way trickier to understand than shorter ones. Like who has the attention span to read a 400 line function? You'll forget what the point of it was by the time you get to the end. They also indicate you might be violating the single responsibility principle, keep it simple stupid, 
and separation of concerns. If you're writing a function that is 400 lines long, then you're probably trying to do too many things in one function. Instead, consider breaking up the different parts of your function into smaller functions. It also means you'll have less reasons to change one function and be able to isolate changes more. Another code smell is confusing names, both with variable names and function slash method names. Firstly, not naming things properly can lead to your code being more difficult for someone else or your future self to read and understand. That is the worst when you're going back to your code you wrote and you're like, what did that mean? Like, if I'd used a better named variable, maybe I'd understand this better. Always remember to do things for your future self, guys. And second of all, Confusing names for functions can often mean you actually haven't written a function with only one responsibility. The last code smell we're going to talk about today is using comments as deodorant. It's really important to document how your code works by leaving comments in the code to help developers understand it. But leaving too many comments ruins the flow of your code and can point to a larger issue. So if you shouldn't be writing comments, what should you be doing? You should instead be writing self-commenting code. This is writing code with good naming and simple enough logic that someone can read it and be able to understand what it is without comments. It's important to note that this code smell is only for situations where code can be written in a self-commenting, easy to understand way. There are some situations where this just isn't possible and this is where you would use comments. For example, Comments can be very helpful when it comes to explaining the logic behind specific parts of your code, and this is especially true when you might be doing something that seems kind of counterintuitive, but maybe you're doing it for an external business reason. Definitely agree. Comments can be very handy when used correctly. There you have five key common code smells. Duplicate code, magic numbers, long functions slash methods, confusing names, and comments as deodorant. Finally, we're going to briefly talk about hacks. And no, I'm not talking about the cool hacking like in the movies with the green text across the screen and they're saying they've breached the mainframe, gotten past the firewall, and then lean back in their chair and say, we're in. No, hacks in software are actually not a good thing. A hack is when someone writes a temporary solution to a problem they are having, even though it means it might cause issues down the line. It gets the job done quickly, but it means if you try to change things later, it's way harder to do so. For example, hard coding the age of Legally Blonde as 21, rather than calculating it in the code, would be considered a hack. Because while it gives you the correct age for all of 2022, it's not a solution that's sustainable over time. And that brings us to the end of this episode, all about what makes good code. We covered loads of different concepts today, including changeability of code and how to write code that is changeable. We also explained some popular basic design principles like solid, separation of concerns, dry, kiss, and yagni. Then we told you why you don't want your code to be smelly or hacky. Our next episode is all about studying engineering in uni. So if you're a student at the moment, you should definitely tune in. If you enjoyed this episode, feel free to leave a rating and subscribe to Hot Girls Code wherever you get your podcasts. You can also follow us on Instagram and TikTok under at hot underscore girls underscore code to keep up to date with the podcast and learn more about software development and being a woman in tech. Thanks for listening.